a lot of these organizations remove the term manager and put in the term coach or leader. So they weren't actually using the term manager. They were saying the platform is the manager. My role here is to be able to see how are you doing, Andy? What do you need? What are the soft skills that I can help you with to be able to achieve your goals? Can I listen to, you know, 10 of your calls and, and identify why you didn't close five of them, as an example, or where you went wrong? And, and those are the things that are really important. And to me, what accelerates an organization en masse. But unfortunately, as to your point, there is a major disconnect where the perception is management is communicating information when in reality, it's more leadership and coaching. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Liam Martin. Liam is co-founder of The Time Doctor and co-organizer of Running Remote, world's largest conference on building and scaling remote teams. And in today's conversation, Liam and I talk about some of the key findings from research his firm has conducted on remote work. And some of the findings, including why the most successful remote companies, at least the ones that Liam researched, collaborate less than their in-office counterparts, why introverts climb to the top faster in remote first companies, why charismatic leaders are one of the biggest barriers to business growth, and we also dig into the topic of sales productivity and tracking the time of sellers. So we get into all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Liam, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, let's jump into it. Liam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Andy. I'm ready Good. and willing to be able to hopefully inject as much remote work knowledge into your brain as humanly possible over the next six years. All right, well, well, we'll talk about that to some degree, yeah. Um, right. But for, let's, let's tell us about you and what you do, because with Time Doctor. Yeah, so first off, just me. I'm a human being on planet Earth. More specifically, I'm in Montreal, Canada mm -hmm. right now, where I spend probably about six to eight months of my time. I run a couple, or I co-founded a couple companies with my business partner, Rob. Time Doctor and Staff.com, which are both time tracking tools for remote teams, uh, running remote, which is a conference on building and scaling remote teams. And then also this book that I've spent the last year and a half writing, which is also called Running Remote, which is really the singular difference that differentiates successful and unsuccessful remote teams in my research. So I've been doing all okay. those for almost 20 years and really loving life right now because as we've moved out of the pandemic stage and moved into an endemic stage, knock on wood for that knock one. Knock on wood, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been um, the last three years of my life have been pretty crazy. So it's nice to be able to get back to a little bit of a quieter time in my life. Got it. So, well, let's let's talk about Time Doctor because that's the thing that sort of caught my interest when I first heard about you was, so tell us what it does, how it works, and then I want to talk about uh, potential examples that you have of sales teams that are using time tracking. So, sure. um, yeah, tell us about the product first and foremost. So, really, the best way to define it, and I, I always hate people that say, like, it's the Uber for whatever, but... It's really kind of a Fitbit for work. So I'm wearing an Uber ring, which is a yeah, uh, me too. Which tracks my sleep. Oh, there we go. So that is it's like an Uber ring for your work. So you start your workday, you turn the tool on. It looks at your websites and applications as you're working on particular tasks throughout your workday. And then mm -hmm. what it does is it analyzes all of that data and it tells you how to do a better job at your job. So let's say that you're a salesperson, as an example. Sure. And let's say that you use HubSpot. Perfect mm -hmm. example, actually, there. Uh, the definition of productivity for a salesperson is very simple. It's how much more money are you making that you can measure through your CRM or the amount of deals that you close through your CRM. So you would look at yourself well, and go ahead. Well, We'll talk about that. Would definition. you disagree with I th that? I think, I think the definition is a little different, but yeah, go ahead. Okay. That's a, we can talk about that too, because that's an interesting, if, if you have a different definition, um, at least for me, salespeople making more money equals good uh, to me. And 
So if you look at those metrics, what you'd be able to analyze is you'd be able to compare yourself to everyone else that uses HubSpot and be able to very clearly see here are the specific actions that successful salespeople use or do inside of their workday. And you seem to be lacking in maybe these particular components of your work or these categories of your work. So maybe as an example, a very successful salesperson spends less, spends between 15 to 20% of their time doing video calls. And you spend 35% of your day doing video calls and you're less successful. And we know statistically that if you're outside of that mean, every standard deviation outside of that mean, you become less successful. Well, then we would make a suggestion to you saying, this is something that you might want to be able to take a look at. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong. Maybe in your particular line of work, you have to spend a lot of time on calls, but it's just the insights that you want to be able to get um, to be able to figure out whether or not you can do your job better. Okay. So to what degree, and so I want to drill down on this because I, I think, Salespeople need to be tracking their time, and mm -hmm. there's huge resistance in general to doing that because you know, salespeople and basically hate to be held accountable for the yeah making the sausage and what goes into it. Right. Um, but I, the reason I said it's different on the the definition of productivity. See, for me, I mean, productivity is productivity. It's a rate of output per unit of input. Mm -hmm. That's the way that's productivity. The world of well, except for. In sales where they want to measure it as a quantity of things <laughs> and and so i think productivity in sales quite frankly is revenue generated per hour of selling time mm. yes and, and that is a really good way to define it because there are instances and i can give you a lot of different examples uh, sure. we had an incredibly successful salesperson in our sales team and this was about five years ago and then we recognized that he was getting up really early before the VP of sales was popping up and he was cherry picking all of the leads that he thought were the best. Mm -hmm. So he literally was like stealing the best leads from the pool. Sure. And we looked at his numbers and we're like, wow, this guy is doing fantastic. Well, effectively he was cheating the system, right? So we had to get rid of him um, because, you know, we, we don't deal with that type of stuff inside of the company. But that's a perfect example of, from a metrics-based perspective, he was incredibly successful. But then when you tunnel down a little bit more and you get the context, you recognize that that's not the case. And the actual, the rest of the sales team, their numbers went down a little bit in comparison because he was stealing the best leads in the right. company. Well, so that's just one example. And there's a lot of one, there's a lot of ways that you can look at productivity. And when I talk to companies, if I talk to a dozen companies, I get 12 different definitions of productivity. Oh, absolutely. At least for them. So what we really look at is what do you want to optimize? Do you want to optimize, um, you know, demos? Do you want to optimize uh, the amount of tickets that you send out, the emails that you send back and forth? Like these are all different variables and they could produce different results. And they also have different work trends that apply to them. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that's that's problematic about that, though, is, again, you're getting back into sort of the quantity of activities type type uh, measurement, which, yeah, I think if you look at an organization of salespeople is, you know, salesperson to some degree is, is and this is not to reduce everybody to just a number, but is, everybody's basically a, an inventory of hours, right? As a seller, you've got a certain amount of hours that are available to you to to sell, your productive capacity as an organization is not, hey, we got theoretically, you know, 10 salespeople each have $100,000 quotas. Our productive capacity is a million dollars. No, your productive capacity is, well, we know that they can generate X number of dollars of revenue per selling hour. What's the total number of hours they have available to sell? And then you start having, so, okay, well, now I can understand what the productivity of the total productive capacity of the organization is. But we need to be able to track the activities that sellers are doing and assign those to specific opportunities that they're working on. Yeah, I get where you're coming from. I think of it just boiling it down to: Are you going to work harder or are you going to work longer or smarter? <clears throat> so, if someone works four hours, as an example, and closes the same amount of deals as someone that works eight, 
I really want to data mine the person that's working four hours Absolutely. and figure out what's, well, both. what are you doing that the eight hour rep is, is not doing, um, and compare and contrast those two workflows. So there's that part it, of it that adds into it as well. Yeah. Well, but it tends not to be about the workflow necessarily. What it really, what you see the difference is because I've managed teams using this, this process where, we're, you know, if somebody, once we had a, a qualified opportunity in a pipeline, all hours that people spent on that opportunity were, were, you know, attributed to that opportunity. Did you filled out time cards? You know, I spent mm-hmm. 15 years of my career filling out time cards as a salesperson and a sales leader. Um, so I knew exactly how much time we were spending to capture an opportunity to the hour, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to your point before is, yeah, if I had two sellers, one who's, able to close the same amount of business over the course of six months or a year in half the hours that someone else was, then that gave me a lot of information to work on that managers don't really have today. Um, and so I just wondering if, you know, is your system can be, cause I know professional services firms use yours, uh, tools. Is this something that sellers could adapt to? I said, track time for the opportunities they're working on. So the managers can see just how much time we're actually investing to close opportunities and really have a, an accurate cost of acquisition. I mean, that's a relatively simplistic way of using our technology. So you can use it as a time tracker, mm-hmm. meaning you're tracking the amount of time that applies to a particular opportunity. Um, but what we use, the way the way in which it gets more interesting for us mm-hmm. is where if you can pull in a quantifiable longitudinal metric, so the amount of um, demos that you've done, the amount of closes that you have, the amount of tickets that you've closed, uh, the amount of JIRA tickets that you've put together. These are all examples of API sure. integrations that we have inside of the app. Then we can measure against that output and be able to figure out, well, who's doing this better, who's achieving more of them, or who's answering these tickets faster um, than other people, and then comparing and contrasting those. Because the magic of all of this is really just crowdsourcing. So what we use is, you may use HubSpot in your organization, but there are hundreds of other companies throughout our network that also use HubSpot, and that's where we define the mean. So we're able to identify all of these other companies and figure out what type of activities they do to coach you towards what we think anyways is mm-hmm. a successful outcome, which is selling more as an example. And so what you're saying is, if I understand correctly, is, is you're able then to mine the data of all of your users so that if somebody is using HubSpot, they're able to see where they stand relative to all the other users who are using HubSpot as well? Exactly. Oh, interesting. So we've recognized that the value of our product is not necessarily the application itself. It's the compounding of all of the other users through within our network, because it's not just the 12 salespeople that you have in your organization. It's the 4,000 salespeople that are across our entire network. Mm-hmm. And then we can tell you, well, actually 60% of them use Salesforce and 30% of them use HubSpot and 2% right. of them use, I don't know, some other CRM. Um, mm-hmm. And the average amount of time that people spend on video calls, as an example, is 20%. And if you spend over 30%, maybe you're in the top 10th percentile of people that closed deals on the HubSpot CRM. So we can tile those metrics back and we can really start to identify signals. It's very, I don't want to call it artificial intelligence because almost everyone calls their app artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence. It's very simplistic machine learning, to be honest with you. And what makes artificial intelligence way easier to achieve is the training set that you have. And we have the largest second-by-second work database on the planet. So we're able to very easily, if you you can give me enough times when you scratch your nose, I can build a training set towards it to be able to predict when you're going to scratch your nose next. Now, there's obviously varying levels of success. There's a lot of false positives that work into some particular activities, but ironically, um, industries like the call center industry or the sales industry or uh, marketing outreach, 
The mm-hmm. metrics are actually relatively simple and there are signals that go across all industries. So it doesn't matter whether you're doing sales for an agency or whether you're doing sales for a SaaS company or for, um, you know, a, a farm machinery company. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some fundamental signals that all of those salespeople have in common. Such as? Well, there's a lot of them. Uh, I looked at, we have one which is an engagement metric, which um, basically can predict retention inside of your organization that we had built a few years ago. Customer retention or employee retention? Employee retention. Yeah. And we had a 96% success rate within six months. So our application was able to predict who was going to stay and who was going to go with a 96% accuracy rate. But inside of that, there are about 23,000 variables. We use a lot of Bayesian algorithms, which um, it's it's difficult to kind of explain well, what, what were the, how what we were use the signals it. that you were tracking that that would indicate whether someone was going to say so things like um, the amount of break time. How long are your breaks? Uh, do you work on the weekend? Do you, how many days do you work past five p.m.? Um, the funny thing is that when you give these types of machine learning algorithms enough data, they start effectively teaching themselves and asking you for other forms of information or start to come up with correlations that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to take into consideration. That's the way that Bayesian works is what you think are unconnected, uncorrelated variables are actually are correlated, but they're so complex that only a computer can really understand them. If that makes sense. But are they are they actual correlations or false correlations? Because you know the stand, you know the classic story about correlations is like yeah, you know, like I think the one was like murders in Tahiti go up based on the amount of ice cream sold in San Francisco or something like that. I mean, there's there's abilities to draw these correlations that don't necessarily have you know true meaning. Yeah, that's why you don't want to necessarily overtrain the model. So we've realized for us there is points in which we could get more precise and there's actually more precise subsets. So like a salesperson, as an example, Mm -hmm. might have a different engagement metric or there might be different variables connected to that engagement metric than a engineer, as an example. But when you get very specific like that, it actually starts to break down and your false positive rate goes up. So, the, the AI is primarily actually choosing these variables. And then we're just going back to the training set saying, well, did that person actually quit or did they stick around yeah. <laughs> for an extended amount of time? Right. And then we're able to figure out that through trial and error and, and build a more efficient model fundamentally. So how did everything change with the onset of the pandemic? Well, that was a really interesting one because we actually saw uh, just to kind of give you the context, 4% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely in February of 2020. And by March, that was 45% of the U.S. workforce. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest shift in work since the Industrial Revolution. But the Industrial Revolution took 80 years, and we did that in March. <laughs> March right. So we saw a complete change of everything that, at least on our data sets, and it was really interesting because we could see it quantifiably shift. Um, there were there were very interesting different changes to the way that people worked. So the biggest indicator was people started working longer and they started working more in evenings and they started working more on the weekends, which is actually one of the indicators of people wanting to quit their jobs (laughs) and not be happy with the work that they're doing. So when everyone switched during the pandemic, it was this emergency work situation, this emergency remote work situation in which there was a lot more pressure on those workers to be able to continue to ship, you know, productive work. Yeah. So what you're saying though, is that, that based on those, those indicators is that you were able to forecast, you know, the great, I don't call it the great resignation. I think a better name somebody coined, I think it was Scott Galloway, the great reassignment. Uh, mm. Yeah. You know, people making yeah. decisions to switch. Yeah. And there was a lot of it um, that went on, uh, at least from the data that, and and some of it we're getting from, obviously, our Time Doctor Network, but then just from looking at all the other studies that are currently coming out, a lot of this is really just not addressing the big elephant in the room, which is there's been a lot of pressure for people to be able to go back to the office. Right now, we're floating at about 30% of the U.S. workforce 
working in part remotely. That includes hybrid relationships down from 45% at the peak. But now we're actually starting to see that number pop back up. So we're effectively what I'll call it like we're at the bottom of the remote work pulse that we had over the last three years. So now we're starting to see that number back uh, go back up. And the primary reason why people are switching from job to job is because of that forcing function of employers saying, hey, we need to go back to the office because I just fundamentally don't think they understand how remote work actually works, which was the point of this book that I wrote over the last two years. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. So, um, yeah, those percentages, how do those vary when you're just sort of taking into account or maybe you, you do in those numbers? Yeah. Office workers, knowledge workers, whatever we you know we want to assign them, as opposed to you know retail stores and other things where the workers had to be present. Yeah, there's a brand new data set that just came out um, from the U.S. government, which was really insightful, and I'm quoting it here from memory. But seven percent of the U.S. workforce is currently working completely remotely. Thirty percent are working remotely and in hybrid situations. So the vast majority of that workforce is working in some type of hybrid way. Now, hybrid is, you could be working one day out of the office and define it as hybrid, or you could be working four days out of the office and defining that as hybrid. So there's a lot of variability that works on there. But inside of that data set, they found that on average, 20% of knowledge workers were working completely remotely moving mm -hmm. forward. Salespeople, as an example, would probably mm -hmm. be a pretty close you know, corollary to knowledge workers, customer support reps, engineers, those types of things. And 2% of construction workers, or people in the construction industry were working right. remotely. So you're absolutely right. There is actually, and there's also a really interesting divide. If you make more than $100,000 per year, you're four times more likely to be able to work remotely than if you make under $100,000 per year. So we're really starting to see that kind of those interesting um, groups form on either side of the spectrum that I think is actually going to produce a lot more problems for us 18 to 36 months down the road. Yeah, it's really interesting because it's, it's, yeah, make over 100K or four times more likely to work remote, but you're probably four times more likely to be required some point in the next year to go back full time. And it's that dynamic, I think, that we're seeing play out, right? The companies are are calling people back and they're not coming back. Yeah. And the beauty of it is, and again, this is just from my own memory. I think we're at 2% unemployment rate in the United States. We're effectively at complete employment. employment, right? Yeah. We're at full employment. Um, and so when you see that type of situation, no, and no other time in history that I can remember have employees had more power in this transaction because there are a lot more positions that are open to them. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a weird phenomenon because, and again, I want to knock on wood a second time, but we are quite possibly going into a recession, right. um, global recession. And yep. yet we've got full employment, um, throughout the United States and a lot of the Western world. So it's a, it's a really interesting phenomenon that I'm not quite understanding. And I think it's actually, the, the basis of it is really connected to remote work because at this point we're recognizing that work is no longer a place. And I think that a lot of the population is coming to that realization. And so employers have not quite gotten that memo yet. There was a, a great study that McKinsey did that came out three months ago about the perceptions of work productivity between mm. employees and employers. 76% mm -hmm. of employees stated that they were more productive when they worked at home. 67% of managers stated that their employees were less productive when they worked from home. So there's like a huge data issue that's currently happening right now where one group thinks that they're more productive and the other group thinks that they are not. And when I was doing research for the book, uh, which was me just analyzing dozens of different remote first companies that were remote before the pandemic. One of right. the interesting things that I found was that these organizations, which I'm calling asynchronous companies, uh, mm -hmm. which is a kind of a concept, which is the ability to be able to manage people without simultaneously interacting with mm -hmm. them. I discovered that their managerial layer is about 50% thinner than their on-premise counterparts. So, 
there are more people doing work in asynchronous organizations than there are people managing people doing work in asynchronous organizations, which gives you a huge, I mean, in the market that makes you a lot more effective. If you can have more people solving hard problems and doing work as opposed to managing people that are doing work, you're going to be a more effective organization. And I think also too, you're going to have a happier organization because those employees don't necessarily really want to kind of, I mean, especially salespeople, they just want to be able to do their work and they want to be able to make their commissions. And if you can set them up for success in that direction, they will effectively manage themselves. Um, I, I love salespeople because they're the most coin operated type of um, employee that you can, at least that I have worked with where I just optimize them towards a particular metric and then they self-assemble towards that optimization. If I want more demos, if I'm going to comp on demos, I get more demos. If I'm comping on closes, I get more closes, those types of things. And I think a lot of people right now don't necessarily like this over-management that is currently happening and they got a taste of the unmanagement philosophy that connects to remote work and now they're being pushed back into a situation in which... They got to talk to their manager, you know, six or seven times a day when they're in the office. They don't want to do that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's it's I mean, obviously, this is this is a perplexing issue for many companies because, you know, there was data that came out, I think, about six months into the the pandemic, an academic institution, I forget which one, MIT or somebody was studying uh, maybe, was, maybe an article in the Harvard Business Review is is. Um, to a point you made earlier about managers thinking that the workers are less productive. There actually was a point at that point where managers sort of had the opposite viewpoint, right? As, mm-hmm. as people who are choosing to go into the office, employees who are choosing to go into the office were saying, well, I don't trust that my colleagues who aren't coming in are actually doing their work. Whereas the survey of managers at that time said, no, yeah, they actually, we trust that they are getting the work done. We can see the, the data. They're getting the work done. Uh, and it's interesting how this sort of shifted back. There's some, at least in some organizations, that say, yeah, I'm not sure they are as productive anymore. Hey, we got to bring them back in person. I think so. And I have a biased opinion, but I try to look at the data as, as, as unbiased as humanly possible. But I believe that employees are more productive when they work from home as opposed to the office. There are less distractions there. I mean, even if you just literally remove the 90 minutes of commute that an employee has to do every single day and they spend that sleeping as opposed to doing work, they're going to be more productive. <laughs> but the trouble is they're responsive. But the trouble is they've been working. Right? We're, at least the, at least in the first couple of years of the pandemic is and you made the point earlier, is people are just they're not taking that extra time to invest in themselves. They're continuing to work harder or longer. Yeah. One of the guys that we interviewed for the book, uh, Darren Murph, who's the director of remote for GitLab, which is a multi-thousand mm-hmm. seat organization that is a very famous asynchronous company. He had this quote that we added in, which I think is totally apropos. He said, we don't want to take, we don't want to make working from home into living at work. And you really need to be able to divide those two spaces, right? So as an example, it's actually, while we're recording this, it's past 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for me. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's it's (laughs) 5.33. But no, no, but but here's the example. Um, At 5.30 p.m., all of the email on all of my devices, except for my work computer, which only stays here, is shut off. So it's not on my iPad. It's not on my phone. It ceases to exist for me. Same with my Slack instant messages. All of these interruptions that you have throughout your workday um, that remind you of the stress and anxiety of your work, mm-hmm. I remove at the end of every single workday that I, I work inside of the company. And that doesn't mean that if there's an emergency, someone could get in contact with me. I actually only have one way of um, people getting in contact with me, which is we have an emergency channel on Slack. And mm-hmm. if someone posts a message in there, it rings everybody's phones. Now, it better be an emergency. Literally, we, we better yeah. be getting hacked 
or right. you know the servers down uh, happens in about once a year but that's the only way that you can really get in contact with me out of those work hours and this is just not a lesson that anyone learned during the pandemic and it comes from the top down uh, the executives and you know the VPs of those organizations were really asking these questions at you know sending people emails at three o'clock in the morning you need to stop that stuff um, it's it's destructive towards everyone inside of the company and is creating an environment where a lot of people are saying, I'm tired of this. I want to move and do something else. Oh, yeah. Well, I think a lot of uh, I'll call them greedy executives um, at certain companies, yeah, looked at this remote work as an opportunity to, yeah, squeeze more out of people, demand more out of people uh, without paying more. Yes. And, and that, to me, is something that everybody... Well, if you're a business owner, you have to look at the core fundamentals of your business and how to be able to optimize your business. So I don't necessarily think that these people are bad people, but market forces are really showing you that there's a pushback here. And, you know, the great resignation is is a phenomenon that we've never seen before. There were more people that quit their job in June of 2021 than in any recorded time in U.S. history as a percentage of the population. Mm -hmm. Just a massive, massive amount of people ended up saying, I'm finished with this. I'm going to go do something else because you're forcing me back to the office and I'm not interested in doing it anymore. And I think that when you look at the core reasons why, and I've been studying this and trying to figure out why it's really occurring, the best guess that I have is when I look at successful remote organizations, they don't have the managerial layer that old school 20th century on-premise environments have. And I think a lot of those middle managers recognize that they are, some of them are redundant inside of that process and probably don't necessarily need to continue on in their tenure in the company company. So they're forcing people back to the office because they're fearful for their own jobs. I'm sure that's part of it. Right. And, but I think that, yeah, I'm listening to you talk about that. And I, and I think that this is not dissimilar dynamic to what we hear from reports that come out from analyst firms about B2B buyers saying, yeah, we don't want to talk to salespeople anymore. Right. Right. And that's not what they were saying. What they're actually saying is, look, uh, we don't have time to talk to salespeople who can't help us get our job done, right? Our mm. job of making an informed decision to make an investment in some sort of technology or whatever we're, we're going to buy, right? If you can help us do that, yeah, we still got time for you. But unfortunately, there's you know, sort of this diminishing percentage of sellers that, that sort of fit that, that criteria. And I think employees, employees are saying the exact same thing about managers is if you can't add value to me and my career and what I'm trying to achieve and all you're doing is just paying attention to a, like an activity metric, then yeah, screw you. I don't need you. Yeah. Well, and the thing that these asynchronous organizations discovered and they've been doing it for almost 20 years is the metrics by which everyone is measured are digitized. So, and they're also available to everyone inside of the organization. There's a very interesting phenomenon that I found when I studied these organizations. They had this philosophy of radical transparency within inside, inside of their organizations. So the idea was that if everyone could have the same informational advantage as the CEO, and obviously, mm -hmm. None of them truly achieved that, but a lot of them right. actually get pretty close. Then those individual team members can become a lot more autonomous because they have the information available to them to be able to make autonomous decisions um, inside of the organization. And therefore, the manager whose primary role was to be able to communicate information from their direct reports up to the next layer of management have become more redundant in this process. And well, that's the I, problem, right? I mean, that, yeah, that you absolutely. nailed the problem was, is defining management role as one of reporting. And this, you know, this is a great disconnect that exists in sales is, and again, this perspective differences where surveys about how much coaching salespeople get, you know, the, it's, 
polar opposite views from the sellers in terms of how much they get versus how much managers say they provide. Mm. Manage, yes. and the, the reason being is that managers feel, especially in certain organizations, feel like they're being pressured to spend most of their time looking at the data and reporting on the data upwards as opposed to doing what they should be doing, which is talking, listening to their sellers, understanding what's really important to them, and then helping them achieve that. Right. Mm -hmm. That's that's a manager's job. And yes. So for the very reason, more so than ever, and the very reason you talk about it is we've, we've got all this data. So this idea of autonomy, you know, I think autonomy, so many people read it and sort of say, well, autonomy means you can be management free. And it's like, no, because the role of managers, how are we, how we still have to mentor people. We still have to coach people to help them develop. But people have to understand that's really the role. And that was another thing that we picked up in the book, uh, which was a lot of these organizations remove the term manager and put in the term coach or leader. Yeah. So they weren't actually using the term manager. They were saying the platform is the manager. My role here is to be able to see how are you doing, Andy? What do you need? What are the soft skills that I can help you with? to be able to achieve your goals. Can mm -hmm. I listen to, you know, 10 of your calls and, and identify why you didn't close five of them as an example, or where you went wrong. And, and those are the things that are really important. And to me, what accelerates an organization on mass, but unfortunately, as to your point, there is a major disconnect where the perception is management is communicating information when in reality, it's more leadership and coaching. Yeah. Well, I just interviewed uh, Stephen M. R. Covey uh, about his new book on leadership called Trust and Inspire, which I encourage everybody to read if you didn't uh, pick it up already. And yeah, great phrase he has in there is, you know, managers manage things, leaders lead people, right? Mm -hmm. And inspire people. And that's, yeah, this is this has become more problematic as we've seen more technology come into the workplace. It's this tendency to default to think, well, I'm doing as a manager, I'm doing my job. If I ensure that everybody above me has the same view of the data as I do. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I think that um, the entire concept of kind of protecting this information and communicating it upwards is also one of those, those real disconnects that at least I've been experiencing when I studied also in office environments of people that recently transitioned to remote work. It was so confusing mm -hmm. to me because I've worked remotely for almost 20 years. And so I started studying these organizations that were just moving remote, right? It'd been remote for six months and I was literally a virtual fly on their wall. And one of the things that popped up to me, which was so confusing is the amount of time that people would spend on zoom calls. And I love zoom. Um, I use it all the time, but people were spending six, seven, eight hours oh, yeah. a day yeah. on Zoom calls. And I started asking people, so when do you actually get any work done? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> we're just meeting about the work that we're supposed to do. Why are people not actually doing work? And inside of asynchronous organizations, because we measure everything, um, we actually clearly identify a percentage of your workday that should be spent on video communication. And on average, in my research, I found that successful asynchronous organizations spend about 10% of their work week on video communications, as opposed to the on-premise or newly remote organizations that were spending 50, 60% of their day on Zoom calls, which I just think is completely nuts. But I think a lot of that was sort of a transitional thing, right? As if people suddenly were accustomed to having, being in a workspace where people were basically within arm's reach, you know, somebody to to talk to about something or just, you know, socialize with even briefly is I just wonder over time, whether we see sort of a, a natural curve, may a bell shaped curve on that where usage is real high at a certain point in transition. But after a while, it's like, to your point, yeah, you have to change behaviors because you spent all your time uh, catching up with folks rather than actually working. Well, I think it actually comes down as well to the culture of immediacy that I seemed to have kind of <laughs> just 
seen as a really weird phenomenon inside of these organizations where it was like, well, we need to actually do this now, or we need to be able to solve this problem right now. And in the vast majority of cases, you actually didn't need to necessarily solve that problem now. It was because the manager or the, the executive was really forcing that and trying to push on other team members to be able to make that happen. When in reality, actually, if you had properly set up your targets and identified a very clear set of milestones to be able to hit and KPIs, then you exist inside of those. And that's when that information is delivered. But these, these yeah. kind of, I would get random calls. So inside of some of these organizations, I'd see these interactions on Slack or Microsoft Teams where one manager would say, hey, can I talk to you real quick in 10 minutes? And, and I interviewed the employee on the other side. And every single time when they give out a message like that, they were all terrified that they were going to get fired. Like the amount of stress that was going through their mind. Hey, can mm -hmm. I talk to you for 10 minutes tomorrow? I need to talk to you about something tomorrow for 10 minutes. So I set up a rule with that particular organization, which was you're not allowed to set a meeting without an agenda. Right. And if you don't have right. an agenda, don't show up to the meeting. Um, and that actually solved the vast majority of the stress inside of these organizations. But they are, I mean, this is not just a singular issue. This is a trend that I'm seeing as everyone kind of, I, I call it remote at gunpoint right? Emergency remote work where no one really knew how to manage these people effectively. Right. All right. So, you know, we're starting to run out of time a little bit, but one question I want to get to is because, because you bring this up in, in your research is you're saying that uh, remote companies research the successful companies, remote companies, successful, make sure I put that in the remote companies mm -hmm. you research, collaborate less than their in-office counterparts. Um, I mean, some of that seems intuitive, but what's sort of the the key point there? Well, it's interesting that you see that as intuitive because other people don't. Um, obviously, <laughs> you know what you're talking about more than than the average person. But the 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 way that we collaborate is different. So we don't sure, get onto a call as an example. Right. We don't get onto a Zoom call and say. What are we go we're going to start a project and we're going to talk about this for the next three hours and kind of brainstorm it out. What we'll usually do is we'll brainstorm that information asynchronously. So we mm -hmm. have something that we call silent meetings. And every week I have a meeting with all of my executives and we write down issues on Asana. We clearly define the context of the issue, why we think it's important and what we think the solution is. And then we debate that through our comments. And some of these mm -hmm. comments can go like 70, 80, 100 comments. But if we come right. to a conclusion, we take that conclusion, we put it to the top of the ticket and we clear the ticket. And if we have less than three issues, we don't have the meeting. It automatically is deleted from our calendars. And mm -hmm. we maybe meet once a month on average. The only tickets that stay up there are the EQ issues or the soft issues. Right. Generally, they are Andy's got a problem with Liam and we need to be able to solve for it because Andy feels like Liam is pushing in on his departmental, you know, uh, requirements or what he's responsible for. And Liam doesn't agree. And we need to be able to work that out. So those human components is what the vast majority of our synchronous time is reserved for, mm -hmm. not necessarily whether or not, you know, we should, uh, have manila envelopes or whether we should be using Times New Roman. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, it sort of lead, this idea sort of leads into the next thought, which is, yeah, and you've seen it, uh, all seen it, CEOs of companies saying, look, there's something ineffable we're missing by not being together. You know, this, this, you know, innovation, this interaction, this, you know, they have a hard time putting a word on it because there's some product of something that's that they believe is the product of people being together mm -hmm. again, whether it's innovation, culture, whatever we're going to put to it that has value in terms of performance and productivity and, you know, ultimately shareholder value, uh, you know, what is that? And, and, you know, so what's your research finding about what is that thing? Well, so, 
And I'm going to push back on that one, actually. I think the issue is that they just don't understand how to do this in a remote organization. So they don't know how to collaborate remotely. And they've been realizing that we're doing 11, 12-hour days and we're getting the same amount of work done that we were working in an eight-hour day when we were in the office. So a lot of people are saying, well, people are, you know, quote unquote, working harder, but they're actually not working harder. They're working less over a more extended amount of time. Um, and the type of work that they're doing is more inefficient because they're using a 20th century on-premise model on collaboration as opposed to the kind of asynchronous model towards collaboration. So everyone that works inside of an office, there's a sunk cost that everyone pays. You spend 90 minutes coming into one particular place every single day. And once you're there, it's a collaboration buffet, right? It costs mm -hmm. you nothing to be able to collaborate. You can meet all day long, no problem whatsoever. Asynchronous teams, however, have recognized we pay the price of collaboration every single time that we meet. So if we jump onto a Zoom call, as an example, mm -hmm. we pay for that cost right before we jump onto that Zoom call. So do we need this Zoom call to be 90 minutes? Could it be 30 minutes? Could we not even have it at all? And what I've realized in my research and studying all of these companies that were remote before the pandemic is the vast majority of the time they don't need the amount of collaboration that we historically need inside of synchronous organizations because they literally just have the ability to be able to do it more efficiently. The manager is not the one that's leading that charge. It's the platform. It's the project management system that's actually leading the charge and measuring and kind of setting up these projects and people in really interesting and innovative ways. And that's the piece that unfortunately I don't think, um, most of these companies are getting, and that's why they're being forced back to the office. Yeah, well, I mean, sort of the last point on this, because it's it's a great point. It's something I think about a lot, because it's... Um, yeah, an author named Ann Latham wrote this book called The Power of Clarity, and she's been on the show, and and she has this uh, term in her book, which I thought was was genius, which, and I don't know if she originated it, but I, the first time I'd seen the book, she said, well, look, you know, Peter Drucker, I think, coined the term knowledge workers, right? These people that together. And what Anne was making the case is saying, well, no, actually, that's not accurate anymore. What they are really is interaction workers. Hmm. Because, and Dan Pink addressed this in his book, To Sell as Human, which really wasn't about sales. It was about the fact that we're, we're all getting work done through people whom we have to influence in order to get that work done, right? He, I think in his book, he's about you know, two thirds, three quarters of uh, you know, white collar workers identify that a good part of their job is getting work done through other people, right? Mm -hmm. Who they need to mm -hmm. influence to devote part of their time and attention to, to what's important to them. So that's why I think Anne's term interaction worker is so important. It's like, you know, have we fundamentally or are we as fundamentally able to interact in the same way as effectively remotely or have we lost some of that? We've definitely changed it. And this, this brings up another really interesting point that I, I gleamed out of my research over the last two years, which was I think that asynchronous organizations have really brought on the rise of the asynchronous, uh, the introverted leader. So mm -hmm. when you go into an office building and you go into a boardroom, as an example, I don't even have to hear any of the people in that meeting to tell you whose ideas will get adopted most often. It's generally the six foot five guy that looks the white six foot five guy that looks like Captain America um, because that person has the charisma in order to be able to convince other people in that moment that his idea is the best, even though his idea may not be the best. And someone like me, the wallflower internet nerd guy that's five foot eight, who doesn't really want to actually 
you know, go tete a tete with the six foot five right. Captain America guy and also probably doesn't have the skill set to be able to do it effectively. I may actually have a much better idea, but because I can't actually bring that information to bear effectively, I don't have the right package to deliver it. Unfortunately, my idea is not adopted and Captain America's idea is. <laughs> Asynchronous organizations, you remove a lot of the packaging. So now right. it's just comments and a project management system. And I can sit down and calmly think about what I'm going to say. Uh, asynchronous organizations have to really, one of the best kind of measurements as to whether or not you're going to be successful is how well you can write and yep. allude to your ideas and describe them. Because I believe that asynchronous organizations allows for more good ideas to be adopted more often because you don't have the charisma bias that you see inside of on-premise organizations. Interesting. Interesting. And also the other thing that's interesting too is this law completely doesn't apply to sales, right? You need charismatic people to be able to sell, right? That is the, I, I mean, well, actually, no, I don't, I don't think so. Don't I think, think so? I think that, no, no, I mean, I, I'm a huge believer that, Anybody can sell and sell successfully and have seen it. And mm. uh, give the example off in the show is, you know, the best salespeople I ever know is pathologically shy. Um, the opposite of charisma, but hugely mm. effective. So Interesting. it's, it's situational. Yeah. It applies to, and there's been research on this showing that extroverts don't perform as well in sales as introverts or actually the highest performing is, is ambiverts people have uh, elements of both, but but um, yeah, you know, the extreme extroversion is is a, a contraindicator for for success in sales, um, certainly in B two B sales. So, mm. but no, I think that that's a really interesting point about the charisma. I, I it's it's comes up in so many situations, and yeah, obviating the influence of that is is really interesting when you're working remote. So. Well, very cool. Well, unfortunately, Liam, we've run out of time, but this has been a fascinating discussion. If people want to learn more about uh, Time Doctor or connect with you, what's the best way to do that? TimeDoctor.com. You can go get a trial of Time Doctor there. And if you want to check out more about the book, go to RunningRemoteBook.com. Uh, it's available on Amazon and everything else, August 16th. Maybe this comes out before that. If it's past August day 16th, before my you can just go pick it up. Audience, day before my birthday. Remember that, August 17th. Okay. Uh, Liam, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank our guest, Liam Martin, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for that. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>